Stephanie Green. Welcome hey. to the fellow uh, fellow travelers podcast, Galmiente. Thanks so much for thanks so much for having this conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. So tell me a little bit about your background. I know I know your bio, but maybe you could give us the Reader's Digest version of your life here. Oh my gosh, I'm going to spill all of it. We're going to be <laughs> here for all. hours. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Long story short, I was born in Virginia, raised in Providence, Rhode Island. So I consider myself a New Englander, even though I spent summers with my dad in Virginia, really close to D.C., Arlington. And then I went to Boston University for my undergrad. That was first as a piano major, and then I switched to composition in my second year. I started double majoring, and then I was working four jobs to pay for myself. <laughs> so I uh, basically dropped the piano major because I said, whatever, I don't need a degree to play Beethoven, right? And then I uh, went to New England Conservatory for my master's. And then I started some doctoral work at CU Boulder in Colorado before moving to the Netherlands in 2013, which was the same year that I started Castle of Our Skins. And it was a little bit of a, I guess, mental slump for me when I moved to Europe, but I never let that slump get to me in terms of being active and still creating. And all of that energy basically just led me to where I am now, which is artistic, uh, sorry, associate artistic director of Castle of Our Skins, um, a fellow at the Graduiertenschule at the Berlin University of the Arts, and freelance composer, performer, social justice artist. It's an incredible mix of things that you do. And it's really inspiring. It's also interesting the way that you navigate your different roles within all of these different organizations. Do you, how much of your time is, is spent administrating versus creating, would you say? I like to take all of this basically one day at a time. So I go through these waves where people will want pieces from me. So then I'll have to just dive into the composition process quite frequently, quite consistently. And then I'll have waves where I don't have so, so much demand and people are more interested in performing the pieces that I've already composed. So that's when I can spend a little bit more time on the administrative aspects of Castle Our Skins and also just myself. As you know, as a freelancer, yeah. you have to manage yourself if you don't have a manager. And even if you do have a manager, you kind of have to manage certain aspects of your of yourself which can be a little bit tedious but we've all got to do it we all got to have those 80 different <laughs> bios and right. try to update our website and still go to the dentist and still have a baby so oh, this is or, a, or a fluffy as you or fluffy. have with us today right yeah fluffy is how do you important. how do you divide the administrative work with castle of our skin to be co director i know that you're both very active um, within the directing roles. Yeah, that's been great because Ash, she, we balance each other out, right? She is the organized, hyper <laughs> on top of everything person. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting here in the Netherlands, you know, speaking Dutch and oh, right. trying to enjoy <laughs> my cheese. Out, sure. <laughs> and then we have basically weekly phone calls. So I always know that come Monday, I'm going to have to get my stuff together. <laughs> right, right, right. right. But, but it's great to have that, that balance against my yeah. check, you know. It, are, is one of you more big picture, one of you more details? I would say that um, Ash is definitely more details than I am, and I'm more big picture than she is. Mm -hmm. But it's not that she lacks big picture and right. I lack details. We both have it in... A good proportion and then when we get right. together it's just like super admin person you know <laughs> and it you, really how did you sucked. decide to do this yeah how did, the, how did you come did you, was there a single conversation or did you just know immediately like this is a person that i'm going to do something with? so we had worked together on a project uh doing our masters at new england conservatory 
Um, she played a couple of my pieces and we just worked really well together. So when I was in Colorado, she was one of, I think, yeah, one of one violists that got <laughs> accepted to the Ensemble Modern Academy in Frankfurt. And so she was there for two years or so. 2013, she said she's coming back to Boston and she wanted to get together and do a concert with me before I moved to Europe. So she had found a venue and organized everything. Unfortunately, that venue went bankrupt. Oh, so no. they never contacted her either. And I remember, I think about two months out, I said, Ash, are we still doing this concert? And she reached mm -hmm. out to the venue and just heard nothing. So we both wanted to do something together. And I said, you know what? I have contacts in Providence. You have contacts in Boston. Why don't we just put together some sort of concert series where we play music by Black composers? And she mm -hmm. said, that's great. Who are the Black composers? And I said, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. So long story short, she said, if we're going to do this concert series, we might as well have a name. And I said, if we have a name, we need a website. She said, if we need a website, we should have <laughs> a mission statement. Right. <laughs> and then we ended up forming this thing. And seven years later, we're still doing the thing. <laughs> right. Well, it's it's so interesting to see the, the journey of classical music in that time. I mean, we're oh in many ways, we're still in the same place. Uh, I mean, it, the, the large institutions are always the last to fall, right? Yeah. But definitely. the conversations are different now because of organizations like yours. And so to go from seven years ago saying, who are the Black composers, to now we're saying, okay, who are the Black composers? We're still asking this question, <laughs> but there's there's at least there's resources for our ignorance. Yeah. yeah. And people yeah, are listening and... It's seven years later, and there are plenty more resource, resources out there. There are plenty more articles. There are plenty more podcasts, such as sure. this one out there. Mm -hmm. So way, way back seven years ago, which isn't really way, way back when you really think of it's it. It's not. It's yesterday. You know, exactly. Ash and I were having these conversations, and we were doing the work to try to catalog and find mm -hmm. pieces that were appropriate for us and put together these concerts. And during that time, I definitely would like to think of Castle Verskins being part of this trend of having people be more aware of who is mm -hmm. out there composing and performing music that isn't, for lack of a better term, white, you know, and male. Well, and let's hope it's not a trend. Exactly. Right? I mean, let's hope let's it's hope not a trend. Yeah. That's, you just said something that's really interesting to me. I mean, you said doing the work, and this is such a, a phrase that we hear, right, with regard to all this work. Doing the work, though, for a lot of us is so nerdy. And, right, it's research. It's boring. Doing the work is, it takes so much time. How do you, how do you start and how do you continue to motivate yourself when it just feels like there's it takes so much time and energy and research and mental energy to do that version of the work mm. for me it's definitely not a task and right. i i understand that for some people it it could be because that's not how they operate that's not where their everyday concerns are but for me nothing gives me more pleasure than to open up a book or do a google search find a black composer that i've never found before and then do all of the things, find the podcast, find the bios, find mm -hmm. the interviews, get frustrated when I don't find them, but then yeah. get really happy when I find a friend of a friend who has a bio <laughs> that they can send me and some programs and program right. notes. You know, I love this. I actually mm -hmm. crave it. And mm -hmm. I have to say, Ash does know this, but I I definitely use Castle of Our Skins a little bit selfishly. I write <laughs> the Beeble blog every Sunday. Um, I have been getting more people to to write blogs, um, so that's been great. Honestly, reaching out to people and having guest blogs. But when before I didn't have guest bloggers, I would just use that time to say, okay, what's new in Black artistry, and I would mm -hmm. just do some research, 
find something that attracted me greatly or touched me or moved me and just write a little blog about it. It was really for my own nerdy self, um, self growth, you know, but for the people who don't operate this way, there are other ways to get this information without having it seem so nerdy. One of the ways is listening to podcasts and just going to SoundCloud. Other ways is just engaging with people like me and Ash and other people who do know artists and say, you know what, give me a composer, give me mm -hmm. their SoundCloud, whatever, you know. Right. I'm so open to sharing playlists. You, you're exceptionally generous with information, time, your, um, your energy. And I see you at this, we'll go a little abstracted for a second. I see you as a, the kind of person who has an energetic presence in the world, the way you interact with people when you enter a room. And for me, this seems like a, it's a skill, right? It's something that maybe it comes naturally, maybe it's cultivated, but it's a skill to be able to connect with your deeper self and to be present. And that's where, to me, that generosity can come from. When you are present within yourself and you feel centered, then you're able to engage with people in a more generous way. Does that, does that seem to resonate with you? A little bit. I honestly don't view it as generosity. Um, mm. I'm, I'm such a nerd. So I really just, I love sharing my knowledge with other people. And so whenever I get a chance to talk about composers like Brittany Green or Jessica Mays or Renee Baker, I'm just like, give it to me. I really want to promote <laughs> their music because they are such amazing musicians, especially for people who spend their time listening to Lachenmann and Sinakis and all of these wonderful composers, I say, yeah, these are wonderful composers, but don't forget, there's right. Ed Bland, there's Jalalu Calvert Nelson, there's George Lewis, there's Julius Eastman, there's Dolores White, there's Julia Perry, right? <laughs> I mean, there are so right. many other great composers out there that the new music community is ignoring. And then we go way back to Chevalier de Saint-Georges and Blind Tom mm -hmm. and Ignatius Sancho and Vicente Lusitano. And there are so many great composers that the Renaissance people are ignoring and the classical people are ignoring and the Baroque people are ignoring and the Romantic people are ignoring, you know? So I'm just one of those people that likes to stir the pot, really. I think that's my alter sure. ulterior motive is just to say, Spice up your programming. <laughs> well, Add a little salt. Up, whatever you want to call it, like <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's no there's no excuse at this point. Yeah. Um let's talk about your music and your performance for a bit because Dalmiante is gonna be programming one of your pieces. P is four. And so that that was uh commissioned by Playground Ensemble. Yes, Can you definitely. tell us about that piece and, and your idea for it? Yeah, so the Playground Ensemble, awesome ensemble in Denver. And when I was in Colorado, I won their Colorado Composers Commission, which resulted in them performing my string quartet chants a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And then they commissioned me for a new mega piece. So that's when I wrote the Gettysburg Address for them, right. which is one of my bigger pieces, it's super, super difficult, and only the Playground Ensemble has performed this piece. Really? Yeah. Okay, ensembles. So, yeah, if you're out it. there. <laughs> so um, we have continued our relationship. I love the players of Playground, and I love the director, Conrad, just wonderful, wonderful guy. And I forget the year, but at one point he said, we got these this money to do micro commissions. So I would love for you to create a 30 seconds or less piece. And I said, okay, yeah, definitely. Um, I love Megan Bunis, the vocalist of Playground. So I just want to write a solo piece for her that's kind of fun, kind of funky, can be interpreted in all sorts of different ways. And perhaps a piece that I can also perform because at that moment I was starting to explore my own vocal performance personality. So what better than to take the letter P for playground mm -hmm. and just explore these sonic possibilities from the letter P. And 
then I just thought, well, how am I going to communicate this information? I, I don't want a typical left to right notated piece because I don't know, that's just kind of boring. <laughs> so I came up with this idea of taking a gra piece of graph paper and blocking out the blocks to form the letter P and composing around the space and having the performer just perform um, be, like left and right and, and consider each line of the graph paper as the staff. Not only does this form this visual P for playground, mm -hmm. but I think it's also something a little bit fun for the performer and can yield great results uh, depending on who's interpreting it. It's super, it's super fun, but it's also pretty challenging having performed it. You have to really coordinate because there's some aggressive sounds and there's a lot of, and it's also a straight through. There's no real breaks or rests really. So mm -hmm. It's once you get on that hamster wheel, like, okay, I'm in it now. I can't yeah. stop. And it's very kinetic. I did a lot of navigating with the, you know, articulators. And so I, I love performing it. And people have a fun reaction to it also because the pacing is so intense. It's this little spark of energy. So I love putting it on programs. Um, yeah, it's, it's very you to me, which is that it's fun and surprisingly challenging. <laughs> awesome. What, yeah. What is, what is it? What is it like for you when you're performing your own music? Are you are you in a different headspace than when you're performing other people's music? Definitely, I like to separate my performance and composer personalities, and then I do that further separation when I'm. Not necessarily when I'm performing a piece of music by my, that was composed by me, but when I'm performing a social justice oriented piece versus a more abstract piece. Um, I like to give performances that contextualize the music. So when I'm performing a piece about the story of black people or about lynching or about resilience, excuse me, I definitely get into a much different headspace than I would if I'm performing a piece that explores the physicality of bowed piano and getting stuck within fishing line that's connected right. to a piano, right? It's, <laughs> it's a completely different headspace. But what I love when I'm performing all music is exploring these spaces and taking on these different personas and giving myself permission to push myself physically, mentally, and to also try, try to challenge the expectations of the audience, you know? Mm -hmm. And being both a performer and a composer um, and someone who really loves attending concerts, I try to envisage the totality of these different performance uh, personalities in an interpretation. So, so you mentioned the approach. audience. You're a captivating performer. There's no question about it. And um, you are not afraid of going to uncomfortable places, joyous places, all of these different facets of community. Do you have, how do you want the audience to feel in these experiences? Do you have any goals there? Or is it just, I'm going to put this out there and then let them do whatever they want with it? Yeah, it's a mixture of both, actually. I personally am more attracted to performers who allow themselves to get into difficult spaces. And I find myself personally being drawn into those performances. So I figure if I find that attractive, then I should also try to embody that in my own performances. And while I am acutely aware of the audience and I try to be mindful of their expectations, I also know that my primary goal is to is to communicate the music, you know, and to communicate the piece. And I feel like if I'm reaching that communicative goal, then the audience is going to go there with me. Maybe not 100 percent mm -hmm. of the audience. But if I get a 90% or more, then I'm so, so happy with that. Um, another thing that's been interesting is just navigating different audience pr 
practices with regards to culture. So for instance, when I performed Zoom In in Hanover in Germany, this was for a rather small audience who didn't really know the songs that I sang in this one particular piece within that set. And when I performed it in Maine, everyone, well, most of the audience knew those songs and they felt comfortable enough to sing with me, which honestly was so, it was such a blessing. Yeah. And it, it, it just, it made me so connected with them in a way that I didn't expect. I was moved. I almost cried while performing, <laughs> um, but in, in the best possible way. Have you ever had, um, have you ever had stage fright? No. Is this part of your, you at all? No? <laughs> well, I, I constantly get stage fright when I'm performing the repertoire. So if I have to perform a Beethoven sonata, I'm just like, whatever. You know, <laughs> Aldo Ciccolini has done this 80,000 times, much better than I can ever do it. But when I'm doing more of the, the performance pieces that I'm most comfortable with in contemporary music, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of a secret. This is this is my secret. Um, I am blind as a bat without my glasses. Mm. And people who have attended my more physical performances know that I perform without my glasses. And when I take off my glasses, I actually don't see the audience so much. Oh, so it's yeah, it's really a way for me to to get back into that practice room, you know, and I'm I'm always 100% better in the practice room than I am on stage performing in front of people. So taking off my glasses has been one of those things that gets me well that gets rid of my nerves really. Oh, it creates that sort of veil. Yeah. How, how do you decide how much of yourself to give? You know, when we're in this dichotomy, it's performance of private versus public. And you write so many very personal pieces. And you're writing about historic events a lot and things that maybe you can be potentially more objective about, but maybe not. But many of your pieces are extremely personal. So how do you decide what to keep for yourself and, and what to give? Mm, that's a really good question. It happens more or less organically, but I give so, so much that I think whatever I consciously decide to keep is still material that can be gleaned if mm -hmm. an audience member does a repeat listening. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, there is a wall that I do have to, to keep when I'm a performer because if I'm if I'm really giving 150%, you know, then I'm just going to be in tears all the time. And that has happened a couple of times. So I have to hold back a little just so I can get through a performance. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what I do give is enough to get over to, to, to communicate the meaning of the pieces that I perform. When something is semi-autobiographical in your music, do you feel like the people in your life that you shared those experiences with are aware of it? Do you feel like people in your life are aware that they're in your music? Is that something that you've discussed? With? <laughs> I, I, I'm so curious about composers like you who have such um, fully embodied presence as an artist and that's fascinating to me because I feel like I'm not always that brave. <laughs> I think you're extremely brave Amanda don't sell yourself short. Really. <laughs> okay that's a ridiculous <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but um, yeah in terms of these personal little messages I would like to think that the people that I include in my performances are aware of it but from a young point in my life as a composer, I've always been concerned with a high level of abstractification when I'm mm -hmm. using things of other people. So for instance, I have this harp and flute piece where I borrowed um, that Wagner lick, right? And the thing is, this piece is a slow 
type of samba Brazilian inspired mm -hmm. piece. And it has this samba harp accompaniment, and then the flute comes in. No one has figured it out. Like no one has figured <laughs> out that I'm just lifting Wagner. And I think it's because yeah. of the recontextualization, right? Mm -hmm. And so ever since that moment, I've been trying to hide games without, yeah, exactly. To play these games where I hide all of this stuff in my piece, uh, in my music. But if you look and you listen in a certain way, you might find it. For mm -hmm. the longest time, I, um, I always made it a point to put bits of Schoenberg's Opus 11 in my music. Because <laughs> it was a piece that like changed my life. <laughs> I've made references to Piero Lunaire that people will never find, That's never so find. Um, but then I've made it super obvious. So I just, uh, I want to say 2016, I wrote this Saxon piano piece where I referenced Whitney Houston stealing Dolly Parton <laughs> and put in I Will Always Love You, even though oh the whole piece is like a variation of Fox Goldberg variations. Oh my and gosh. within there, I quote Beethoven's Opus 109, which is my favorite sonata. I quote Ed Bland, his sketches set seven, and all of these other pieces. <laughs> but I do make points of it in the music. Um, and then I just wrote this two flute piece where I quote Hindemith and Ed Bland again, nice. Han, Bach, Ravel, uh, <laughs> Prokofiev. It's, yeah. it's this, this postmodern soup, but you know, it filters through you and it gets green. You know what I mean? I, exactly. it, it's all through your style and it's through your vision. And you've, you've quoted one of my favorite composers, Charles Ives, and yes. you and I see you as being a figure like him, because he was oh. just a big effing dork, right? <laughs> and he, he in took all, he sort of like downloaded all of this American information, this mess of American information at the beginning of the 20th century, and then said, what? the hell are we even trying to do right now, folks? Yeah. <laughs> and then just kind of spewed it out with so much style. Oh and gosh, yes. that's what I, I do see you as doing that sometimes in these yeah. really interesting ways. Well, Ives has definitely had a really big impact on me. Um, I like to think that Ives and I have so much in common, not only because of our love of hymns, my mm -hmm. mom, uh, brought me up in the church, and mm -hmm. I'm still a big fan of uh, Blessed Assurance mm -hmm. and all of the Negro spirituals, of course. I've made arrangements of quite a bit of them. Um, Come Thou Found, all of these beautiful, beautiful hymns. So that has connected me with Ives' music in a way that people who don't know hymns can't really connect to. Mm -hmm. There are so many different readings of Ives' when you're familiar with hymnody and how hymnody is practiced within the church. And you can tell when Ives is just making fun of how congregation members sing hymns. You know what I mean? He puts things in the worst ranges. Right? They're so because awkward. Because are in the worst range. Yes. <laughs> like when I was a church musician, I was constantly taking things down a whole step just to accommodate mm -hmm. my audience's voices, you know? Right. Um, but on another level, um, I worked for an insurance company for about two years. Shut up. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you are like <laughs> this weird reincarnation. <laughs> <laughs> when I think about Ives, I, to me the experience, because I, I grew up in the Catholic church and so some of the hymns do cross over, not all of yeah. them, and but the, the general aesthetic of the hymn, pre-Vatican II especially, is still there. Yeah. And it's this experience, it's sort of this twofold experience. One is of being a person outside the church, hearing people singing inside the church. So you're sort mm. of this one layer removed from it. But mm. then there's also this aspect of, of being an insider. And what does that mean culturally to be an insider? And you're talking about it too within the sphere of classical music, of like hiding these little references and pop music, yeah. hiding references within things. And 
right now at this cultural moment with cultural discussion, we talk a lot about openness and welcoming and bringing people in. And I think one of the things that's so difficult about classical music is that it's all codes. <laughs> uh, it's it's this it's hundreds of years, hundreds of years of codes. And so it's like, yeah, we can make our concert spaces welcome. But that's different than growing up learning the codes. And it's like growing up in the church or growing up listening to anything. Like unless you grow up internalizing all these things, how do we make it welcoming? Mm. You know, without without that knowledge and without the because then it just it, it's it can be very beautiful. Oh yeah. But it's, it's not gonna have that playfulness. Definitely. I I would say the theater world has a great term for this and that's breaking the fourth wall, you know, mm -hmm. going beyond this imaginary barrier and trying to reach out to people even though when you're an actor there's so much that you have to hide from the audience you're hiding mm -hmm. the mistakes in your dress rehearsals you're hiding mm -hmm. the blocking you're hiding mm -hmm. how you have to stand depend on the lighting cues you're hiding all of the staff that's controlling so much behind the scenes right mm -hmm. so i think in every performance practice there will always be so much hidden from the audience and we as performers just have to be concerned with creating a product that is communicative enough to reach either our desired audiences or a broad audience, depending on what your goal is, mm -hmm. knowing that people aren't going to get it 100% either on the first listen, either on the second listen, or maybe ever, right? Maybe mm -hmm. we as artists shouldn't necessarily be concerned with people getting 100% of everything. But as long as the product we put out there can entertain or enlighten or do the things we want it to do, we should be able to do that. And we should be able mm -hmm. to tell people that this is what this product does. And you have the freedom to enjoy it in your own way, you know. Oh, that's beautiful. I love <laughs> that. And it, really, a lot of it does depend on um, the person who's conveying it having this this passion and excitement and so so much about creating a welcoming space for people is about the people who are performing yeah. creating an atmosphere of engagement of being being willing to put themselves out there really and take that risk take that first step of reaching out to everyone and trying to convey what makes them excited and that's really that can be so difficult i mean i, I see you as particularly good at this at, like you, you've done so many of these like sort of artist residency types yeah. of situations. So you're so good at being able to take, to take these really complex things that you're doing. Here's what I'm doing. Let me break it down for you. <laughs> that's, such a, that's such a skill. I've been super blessed, honestly, to have been a part of these residencies. And it was a mixture of being lucky, but also in being in a weird situation, right? I When I moved to Europe in 2013, um, I moved to the Netherlands without steady employment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that I wanted to continue my freelance work, but I was moving to a country who had just reclassified music as a luxury. Oh. And so all of the, the government, well, much of the government money was completely stripped away wow. from organizations and the singular most important organization that helps composers just completely went bust the year that I moved here. Oh. So, <laughs> so I was just in this situation where I was at home every day just twiddling my paws thinking what am I gonna do to make a living and that's one of the reasons why I jumped on the residency bandwagon. You you know, I had the time to do it and I had the luxury to do it. And not everybody has that time and luxury. Um, so I was I was completely blessed. It was a blessing in disguise, honestly, because if I, I hadn't done those residencies, I wouldn't be where I am today. You know, part of my big performance practice was because of what I did at the Venus in Omaha mm -hmm. and the people that I met there, you know, Christy Chan, Helena Metafaria, the Tug Collective. I mean, those people really, in more ways than I can ever articulate, changed my performance practice, and I can't thank them enough. 
Did you consider yourself before then primarily pianist, classical composer? And then is that is that when you moved into vocalizing and more theatrical performance? Yeah, definitely. I did a bit of it in Colorado with my friend uh, Nathan Wheeler. We were fooling around one day with a mic and just recorded some sessions with us doing vocalizations. And we were challenging each other. He was amazing doing what he was doing and um, really got me to match his energy. And then I saw this call to graphically, uh, to interpret a graphic score by Mark Applebaum. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what, I'm going to shoot for it because I can pick a date if I get selected. And then I get to go to California, hang out with my friend Allison, who I met at a residency, <laughs> and perform this awesome piece. Lo and behold, I got accepted. That's so <laughs> I decided to create this electronic background and interpret the graphic score vocally. Wow. That experience also encouraged me to explore a little bit of vocalizations, but I was still not, um, you know, I, I never formally studied voice mm -hmm. significantly. I'd taken some voice lessons with some friends um, who were telling me about the larynx and about how the vocal cords works and about mm -hmm. vocalizations and registers and all that stuff. And I'm totally, totally grateful for those lessons. But, you know, I don't have this background of being in the studio class and performing Kato Mio Ben really badly for five people and having them pretend that they enjoyed it. You know, <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's not in my past. It's okay, I've you're better off. <laughs> I've been on the piano end of that, but not the vocal end. <laughs> um, and I don't consider myself a vocalist who will ever perform Kado Mio Ben well. Right. But mm -hmm. if a composer wants me to screw up my vocal cords, I will say, <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. That's what I want to do. So. No, that's, uh, and you do some amazing inward sounds, which is oh. like was my area of research. And I just like, I hear your ingressive multiphonics. I'm like, Oh, they're so good. Did oh those come naturally? Have you like really like cultivated them or is it just? Well, like, it's one of those things I was experimenting with um, ingressive phonation. And this happened because of a piece that mm -hmm. I witnessed in A Coruña, Spain during a conference mm -hmm. in 2010. And the piece is called Anaphora mm -hmm. by Michael Edward Edgerton. Edgerton? Edgerton, mm -hmm. who has a vocal anthology, yeah. um, and one of my pieces is in the anthology, too. Um, oh, it is? Yeah, yeah. BA4 nice. made it into the <laughs> anthology. So nice. I just had mad respect for not only him, because he's just a brilliant mind, but also for Almuz Kuna, who performed the piece. And Almuz and I got to hang out. She shared the score with me. And ever since then, I said, the voice can do this. So <laughs> I spent some time with that score, kind of mocking these things, not mocking, mm -hmm. but um, imitating right. things and trying to perform what Michael had notated in, in the music and then trying to add my own green little twist on it. Um, <laughs> so I think eventually my vocal cords stopped yelling at me and said, okay, this is what you <laughs> want to do. I'll, I'll let you do it, but you're not. You're not going to be able to sing Quella Fiamma at all. It's just not going to happen. I mean, the, the voice is just this malleable, bizarre animal in our throats, right? It's, and sometimes it, it tells us what, what it wants to do. Definitely, and, definitely. And but you also... Days, you know, yeah, oh, I was say, yeah, some days like I have a high C sharp, and sometimes I have a low D flat, and sometimes I just don't. Right. Yeah, I mean, your voice seems a little sort of middly, like it could go, you know, go either way if you like decided that you were going to like put on some sort of opera wig and go for it. But um, but no, I think what you're doing is way, way cooler. And it, it the voice seems to take on sort of a heavy meaning in a lot of your work, you know, give, the idea of giving voice oh, yeah. and drawing on, you know, all these different um, poem traditions and gospel traditions and things that you um, reference in a lot of your work. Um, is there something about voice for you because it's not something that you trained on that it it accesses a different part of your creativity? Oh yeah, definitely. 
So when black people were stolen from Africa and brought mm -hmm. to the United States, they were stripped of their last names, they were stripped of their language, they were stripped of their instruments. So what did they have left? You know, they had their voice, they had their bodies, they started step dancing, they started sneaking off into the woods and creating songs. They used these songs as code language to tell each other when and how to escape to the North if they were planning on escaping, right? Black people in the United States have such a different relationship with their voice. And I'm just so blessed to be part of that tradition, you know? Mm -hmm. um, of course, I'm not, I'm not continuing it in the way that enslaved people did because I am a black person in 2020 right now. Mm -hmm. But I do, I, I would like to think that I am continuing along with this legacy and, and trying to keep that origin, uh, that origin story alive and well in my pieces, but also try to push that, that message and that practice into different areas because we are in this future context and people beyond me hopefully will take what I've done and contextualize it for their juncture in time. What is the message? You spoke about performing repertoire versus performing maybe narrative music. What is the message with your voice? What's the message when, especially it's not directly referential, but it's more abstract vocalization? Mm. Maybe, that, maybe that's too personal, but I'm not. No, no, it's not yeah. at all. I would say that the message isn't something that can be articulated with words, but it's a message that's meant to be felt. When I'm doing these performance art, sonic performance art sets, I don't necessarily want the nitty gritty semantic meaning of a word or a phrase or a sentence or a piece of prose to be the thing that's focused on. Rather, I would like the complete emotive picture that's being painted within the particular piece or within the whole set. I want that to be the main message. And I want that to be the thing to move the audience, not only to look within themselves and try to do internal corrective work, but if they're so moved to, to also reach out into communities, reach out into their network of friends and family and try to do corrective work within those contexts as well. So I'm trying as much as possible to use these abstract performances that have a goal of taking really complex, sometimes emotionally tough ideas and to bottle this up into this emotional light and try to penetrate that light into people's souls. There's a sense of activation there. Yeah. Like there's a, there's this connection to lineage that you it seems like you almost feel directly in contact with the past. Yeah. In, in so much of your work in so many different ways. That yep. you're not just researching it, you're not just writing blogs, you feel part of it. Definitely. I feel part of it because in 2013, when I really started to do this personal research and go down this journey, this constant journey, it was the first time that I started to enjoy learning about history. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to say I wasn't <laughs> the biggest fan of history in school. And I don't know why, right? Um, well, maybe I do know why. I think because the way history was taught, as well as music history when I was in, in university, I did like learning stories about WC Chopin and my favorite composers, et cetera, and so on. But when it came to just the formal study of music history or world history or US history, I always felt that there was something missing. Mm -hmm. And in 2013, when I started doing this personal research, I figured out that what was missing was the black perspective. And as soon as I started to look at these 
situations mm-hmm. in the past from the black perspective, mm-hmm. things just started falling into place. Mm-hmm. And I felt personally connected with these stories, right? Because mm-hmm. it was only in these moments where my research allowed me to be proud of who I am and where I am now. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why I feel so connected. Were there any particular stories from the past that that felt like a watershed moment? Like a, a particular person you said, oh yes, I relate directly to this. Yeah, so, so many. Uh, okay. And, and not necessarily <laughs> uh, because I'm similar to these people, but finding out about their stories, knowing that they're Black, knowing that if I were born in that time period, I could have been that person or I could have experienced the same things. So I always like to go back to Blind Tom. He was on the autism spectrum and uh, low functioning. So he couldn't communicate everything that he wanted to communicate specifically. He interacted with people mostly physically with grunts, On the other hand, he had this amazing ear. So if you spoke something to him in any language, he could repeat it back without accent. Mm. He also had this amazing ear and this gift for piano so that if you played a Beethoven piano concerto for him, he could play it back practically without mistake. Mm. He toured the world, but he was enslaved all his life. So while he was making the equivalent of $10 million during his lifetime, he and his family didn't see a dime of it because Mm -hmm. he was property. Mm -hmm. Um, I am not on the spectrum, right? But when I read about him and I just think, what if I were born in that time period and I were this black man trying to be a musician, witnessing this enormous talent of Blind Tom, how would that have moved me, A, and B, he has a piece called Battle of Manassas, which for me, I haven't come across any other piece earlier than this that mixes vocalizations with pianism. And still you find term papers out there, dissertations saying that the first vocalizing pianist pieces were Cowell and Ives, right? And I'm just saying, nope. Actually, a black person did this 50 right. years before I did it. So I get this pride knowing that Blind Tom was such an innovator, such a talent, and he was black. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that the people who experienced those performances were shaped by them. That yeah. he shaped history yeah. through his work. Yeah, yeah. With When you're... When you're thinking about the past, do you also experience a vision for the future? Do you feel like you see a path forward or are you, I'm not trying to like put pressure on you, like, hey, what's going on next? Give us the answer. Just give us the answers. No, I'm just, I'm curious about um, whether you spend spend time daydreaming in that way or envisioning the future, or if you just try to be present, what needs to happen right now? I uh, I think about the future way too much, to be okay. honest, <laughs> but it's, it's always in good ways because when I'm doing my research, especially when I'm trying to find younger composers of color to add to my own personal repertoire or also just to engage Castle of Our Skins to perform or other performers to perform, when I'm doing this research, I'm thinking, okay, here is this awesome 20 year old who is just creating amazing music and hasn't had the opportunity yet to get on those platforms to make this creative person uh, more visible. But I want to be part of the, the, the people, you know, I want to be in that cohort that's making this awesome yeah. composer more visible. So I get excited for the future in that respect wanting to be part of the trend to make younger composers more visible and more performed and studied. And then I get really excited when I get to share the research that I've done about past composers with current academicians so that they can bring 
some of the research that I've done into their theory classes, into their mm -hmm. history classes, and into their personal composition lessons so that they're training the next generation of musicians to treat this music as important and hopefully some of this music can become beloved, you know. Florence Price's music has recently become beloved over the past, I would say, five to six years, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. Raylinda Brown was one of the mm -hmm. scholars that really helped do this. But she's one of so, so many composers whose music deserves to be more beloved and programmed and known by audiences, right? right. Um, I was recently engaged to write a CD review for uh, the Tempo Journal, and I was reading some other CD reviews, and I see all of these writers referencing Huyafarts and Alan Hilario and all of these composers, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, now is my time to reference Dolores White and right, Julia exactly. Perry and all these composers that you probably don't know, but I consider beloved because right. they are a part of the composers that I regularly listen to, and they should also be part of the composers that everyone regularly listens right. to, right? So right. this is my excitement for the future, to try to see more of a presence of marginalized composers, especially composers of color. And this seems to just rev you up so much. I love that. And I, I love seeing the energy that you, that you put in this. It's really such a service to the world. But I also love the, the understanding that you bring from so many different perspectives. Because you're not doing this as a musicologist. You're not doing this as just a performer, as just a composer. You're doing this as a whole person who understands every aspect of the music. And so you're able to talk about it with so much depth. And um, yeah, I think that there's no way I, I think that someone could read or listen to you discussing this music without like walking away feeling as though you know it's part of them. Oh, really beautiful. Well, this it happens because of seven years of constantly doing this. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, 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 right. I think if you had um, engaged me in this podcast five years ago, you probably would be like, Anthony, why are you so lifeless? Right? <laughs> no. Oh, hey, we all have we all go through phases of like being in the world and receding, and I think that's really really healthy. I'm curious about what what you where you see your music going sometimes i this will just for a second like sometimes i feel like there's a big thing i'm gonna do and i haven't done it yet and i don't know what it is but i know it's gonna you, do you know what i'm saying like oh, okay yeah. i think there's gonna be a big thing that i do but i don't know what it is and it hasn't happened yet that's all i know do you have the sense about yourself that's like okay there's gonna be a big thing and it's gonna happen and i don't know what it is yeah, all the time, actually, and sometimes to my detriment, because <laughs> <laughs> because when I was younger, for instance, I wanted to write this universal requiem, where mm. I wanted to create a text um, about the process of honoring the dead and the process of mourning and transcending these feelings and getting everyone into a better place, despite this horrible situation of death. Um, so I wanted to write this non-denominational text and write this huge piece for choir and orchestra. Yeah, that never happened. It's probably never gonna happen, right? You were like a but much deeper kid than <laughs> I don't know about that. I was still watching America's Next Top Model. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's deep too, and it's okay. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that. But uh, <laughs> But, you know, I, I'm constantly having these ideas for big projects, and lots of those big projects just won't ever see the light of day. But what keeps me going are the ideas of these big projects. And sometimes the kernels of these big projects seep into my other pieces in different ways. For example, this whole idea of text universality um, has manifested itself in this semi-private project that I'm working on now, but I'm writing a love story between two people and I'm purposely leaving out references of gender. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that can be turned into a song cycle or maybe an opera that anyone can perform regardless of their gender, you know. Mm -hmm. So 
part of that old idea is within this current idea. And I'm working on this idea. It also might be something that I'm not going to finish, you know, right. because life gets in the way and other commissions get in the way. And I'm constantly having these ideas, honestly. If, if I were to show you or tell you all of these ideas, <laughs> it would be a whole other hour and a half long podcast. But I also know that whatever I do, I'm super enthusiastic about all of the things I do. So when I say yes to a commission, when I say yes to a performance, when I say yes to a collaboration, it's something that I genuinely want to do. And if that mm -hmm. means putting something else on hold, so be it, right? Yeah. I've got right. my life. And That's, Do you have yeah. a hard time saying no? Is that something that you, yeah. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you're such a generous person. I, but I mean, there has to be there has to be a boundary, and you talked about that earlier with regard to your writing. But just with life, if you don't have an assistant or something, yeah, there are some boundaries. I I have said no to a couple of things, especially in the wake of George Floyd. Quite a lot of people have asked me to talk about anti-racism in mm. performance practice. And I love it. I love talking about it, but I have said no to a couple of requests because after a while it does get emotionally taxing. Sure. And um, and I also, I have other aspects of my practice that I wanna talk about. So, yeah. you know, if you're gonna engage me, then let's talk about all of me. Let's not talk about right. that one little slice of me. So thank you for, <laughs> allowing I me mean, to talk about all of me so <laughs> and well it's sort of like what you said with the with reference to black composers and and looking for this new work there are so many resources now so when people want to make you a figurehead whether that's because they want i don't people we can't get into people's motivations but exactly it you do need to ask yourself sometimes like have they done their homework? Why do they need me to come explain this to them? At this point, it's like, do they not know how to read? I, I feel like yeah. that's a big part of it. Like, do they really need my time? Yeah, it's mind boggling. You know, I, I'm not going to name specifics, but there was an organization who reached out to one of my, um, my black musician friends, a pretty well known, real respected organization. And basically throughout the conversation, the representative of this organization said, wow, there are black composers. <gasps> oh. yeah, that, that's basically what happened. And not only did the representative of that organization do that, uh, but then they hung up and didn't offer any money for the time. So oh, yeah, it's on. a classic example of what not to do. It's it's really amazing to me and so disappointing that the the music that I love that I think it seems sounds like you love also we love so many of the people who make it and it still lets us down so much but um there <laughs> what can we do <laughs> what can we do we I I just I, for me I I I have to constantly reckon with it I'm sure you do too in your own way yeah, yeah, we have to just, we have to realize that first and foremost is the music, really. Mm -hmm. And people will always be secondary to the music, you know, uh, at least in terms of a practice. When right. I'm doing my thing and I'm within my practice, it's about the music. It's about mm -hmm. my performance. Mm -hmm. um, so when I'm having these non-musical engagements, I I shake my head. I I bow down. I horror at the disgust of humanity and the deplorable nature of some people operating right. within this world. But then I think at the end of the day, it's not about them, honestly. It's about right. what I can do to make sure these types of people don't exist anymore. And Well, and following <laughs> following the money is such a fascinating because oh, these the the people who are creating these problems and perpetuating these problems are paid by people who are perpetuating other problems <laughs> and, and 
we have to look at our own little sphere. Like how, what can I influence? Yeah. How can I, what little needle can I move and in which communities and with which, with which people I think it, with all of these situations, it's like, I, I'm not going to topple this entire thing, yeah. but I can really, you know, I can clean up that one little corner, I guess. It's true. And I find the more and more I continue to operate within this world, the more I find people like you and I mm -hmm. getting into those problematic spaces and doing a little bit of work to mm -hmm. try to change the environment, to change the vernacular. Um, oh man, I, I was just about to be more specific, <laughs> probably get myself into a little bit of trouble. But I just yeah. want to say that there are people out there who are in these problematic spaces who are creating change. And for those of you who know who I'm talking about, I want mm -hmm. to give you a hand clap for doing this work and, and putting up with some crap. Um, yeah. But know that the crap that you put up with is is um, it's not being taken for granted. And you are not doing this work in vain because you are helping people like me, people like Jesse Cox, people like Elizabeth Baker. You know, you're helping all of these people be more secure and more confident in continuing in their practice. When you're having ripple effects that you won't even see, like so many of the composers that you've named on this podcast who will never know the influence they've had on you. And I think that's a really good motivation as well, knowing that you are going to impact generations of composers and of musicians and of audiences by your work that you won't even be able to see. And I've been so impacted by by people like you, by by people who have called me out, by people who have challenged me. And that's such a beautiful thing that people do for us that we need to appreciate. Mm -hmm. And all of these learning experiences, no one's perfect. And being being afraid of messing up um, is is can be paralyzing for some folks. Um, but the the payoff is there. Yeah. Right. The payoff of being embarrassed, of getting it wrong, and learning how to give a proper apology without you know all of these things are are skills that we're learning in this process and. Um, and you have gracefully offered all of these lessons to us and so many people that you'll never even know. That's so fascinating to me. It's like, I think you know that you're having an influence and that you're a thought leader like this and on an abstract level, you know that. It's really impossible to measure that kind of thing. Exactly. It's definitely more an abstract concept for me and I like to keep it more abstract not necessarily because I don't want to acknowledge my self-worth or anything like that, because I'm a firm believer in acknowledging your self-worth, but I also don't want to get caught up in that process and make me lose the fact that I am still and always will be a work in progress. And mm -hmm. I'm constantly called out. I actually was called out on a piece that I composed some time ago. I was... Mm -hmm called out on it last week and I was super grateful to engage in the conversation that I had and learn so much, you know, um, and, and, and a changed person moving mm -hmm. forward. So thank you if this person <laughs> is watching this. Um, and, you know, for anybody whose lives I've changed, I don't, want to think of it as me changing lives. I want to think of it as my ancestors working through me and a community really changing lives because I don't know, I haven't learned what I learned without my community and without the work of my ancestors. So it's, it's not me. It's, it's the, it's the totality of it all. And that's the beautiful thing. You know, there's, there's that famous African proverb. It takes a village to raise a child. And we can apply that to this situation, right? It's going to take a village to get classical music to the place where it needs to be. But we need that village and we need to keep on boosting up those important wise people within this village because those are the people who are going to get us to where we need to be. That is such a beautiful statement. And 
I don't want to distract from it in any way. I think that's the best way to leave this with that beautiful message. Um, I love what you brought to this conversation. It's the same as everything you bring to your performance, to your activism. You give you give people permission to be fully who they are and to take risks and to experience something higher and more beautiful in art. So thank you for that. Uh, thank and you. For your music. Any last words that you want to say to, to the people out there about how to find your music, how to find music that you love? Give some shout outs. Yes. So my website <laughs> is uh, anthonyrgreen.com. Um, my most active social media is Instagram, which is at Piargno84, P-I-A-R-G-N-O-84. And my Vimeo is uh, slash Piargno, P-I-A-R-G-N-O. And then to follow Castle of Our Skins, please visit our website at castleskins.org. And um, Fluffy doesn't have a social media, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> but Fluffy is very appreciative of this time as well. Um, as as you can all see, I I'm a geek, and <laughs> and I don't take myself too seriously, and and I encourage everyone else to not take themselves too seriously either, because it's there's lots of beauty in being ridiculous as well. <laughs> thank you so much thank you so 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 much this is wonderful thank you amanda <laughs>